first of all, welcome everyone to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Um, I recognize many of the faces here, but if you don't, if I don't know you, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles Stang. I'm the new director of the center, and I'm very happy um, to inherit this popular series from my predecessor, Frank Clooney, who inaugurated it. And it's done a great benefit to the HDS community, the Harvard community more generally, to have faculty um, showcase their recent publications. Uh, not only to celebrate these publications, but more importantly, to learn from them by engaging with them appreciatively and critically. Uh, to that end, we're grateful for our two faculty respondents, both local, whose comments will kick off this evening's conversation. So before I, whoa, Sorry. thanks Kate, okay. The dean can hear me next door now. Um, all right, uh, move that back a bit. So before I introduce our two respondents, let me um, briefly introduce our author. I think this is now off again. Forgive me. Okay, so um, I should say that I favor brief introductions uh, so that our time together is spent learning from these scholars, not about them. So at the center of this evening's event is our very own Mark Jordan, the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Christian Thought at Harvard Divinity School and Professor of Studies in Women, Gender, and Sexuality in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He currently teaches courses on the Western traditions of Christian theology, the relations of religion to art or literature, and the prospects for sexual ethics. His most recent books are Convulsing Bodies, Religion and Resistance in Foucault in 2015, and most recently, Teaching Bodies, Moral Formation in the Summa of Thomas Aquinas. I will add that anytime I feel good about myself and my publishing schedule, I just have to look at Mark's CV <laughs> and I am plunged into self-loathing. <laughs> David DeCosimo is Assistant Professor of Theology at the Boston University School of Theology. Professor DeCosimo works in theology, ethics, religion and politics, philosophy and theory of religion, focusing especially on Christianity and Islam and on philosophical, theological, and theoretical questions surrounding relations among Christians, Muslims, Jews, and atheists. His first book, Ethics as a Work of Charity, Thomas Aquinas and Pagan Virtue, in 2014, examines Aquinas's account of whether non-Christians can lead virtuous lives, offering a reinterpretation of Thomas's moral theology and synthesis of philosophy and theology. His forthcoming second book, entitled Four Tasks of Christian Ethics, offers a new way of understanding the history and work of Christian ethics and an account of how and why that work so often goes awry. Our second respondent is uh, Professor Jim, uh, James Keenan, uh, who is Canisius Professor in the Department of Theology at Boston College and Director of the Jesuit Institute. His research in interests include university ethics, fundamental moral theology, history of theological ethics, Thomas Aquinas, virtue ethics, HIV AIDS, and church leadership ethics. His recent books include University Ethics, Why Colleges Need a Culture of Ethics, 2015, 
and Paul and Virtue Ethics, co-authored with Daniel Harrington in 2010. So here's how this evening will unfold. Professor Jordan will say a few words about his book. Then Professors uh, Keenan and DeCosimo will respond in that order, I understand. Then we will give Mark a chance to respond in turn. And then what we'll do is we will bring uh, three seats forward, form a sort of panel, and open it up to your questions and comments. We're going to conclude promptly at 7. And uh, I only ask that as you compose in your mind your question or comment, you try to be as succinct as possible. <laughs> try to channel Aquinas in your uh, brevity and perspicacity. Um, please join me in welcoming uh, my dear colleague, our dear colleague, Mark Jordan. I had put Professor Stang under strict orders to limit my introduction, and I must say that this is the only time in my life in which anyone has listened to me. Um, <laughs> and I also do want to note that I specialize in self-loathing, but I usually practice it as a solitary art. <laughs> I do thank Professor Stang for the invitation that brings us together, and thank all of you for coming out tonight. Um, I give special thanks to our guests from across the river. They have been generous in agreeing to read and speak. Looking at the three of us, you may be curious or even troubled by the lack of physically marked diversity. Since my book is preoccupied by teaching through bodies, I've, I've been struck by that too. Indeed, I continue to reflect on the institutional conditions for the academic study of Thomas Aquinas at a time when Thomas continues to be taught and read in every part of the world under the widest range of cultural conditions. Perhaps we can talk about this later. Still, I want to assure you that under these apparently homogeneous bodies, there is an explosive variety of theological positions. I contain several hundred myself. <laughs> and, and I also want to remind you that the panel embodies one of the most historically consequential divisions in the reading of Thomas. My own method, if I have one, descends from the French Dominican school of the Solchoir, and especially from Marie-Dominique Chenu. It was with a mixture of resolution and trepidation that I insisted we invite a Jesuit. <laughs> I'm supposed to say a few things about my book by way of framing our discussion. I won't try to summarize it. Indeed, I hope that it can't be summarized, since it is supposed to trace a process of reading, exercises, rather than summary claims in propositional form. But I do believe that I can safely describe three sets of questions that led me or lured me in the writing. The first set consists of questions about the importance of the structure of Thomas's Summa of Theology. Very few readers, even or especially professional readers, have a vivid sense of the whole of the Summa as it actually unfolds. Their difficulties are understandable. The Summa is a very large book, and almost no one reads the whole of it. 
Even commentaries that pretend to explain the entire structure slight or skip over large portions of the text. Then again, the drive to scholarly specialization pushes interpreters to seize on short passages already highlighted by our disciplinary gazes and our definitions of worthwhile problems, <coughs> which typically exclude pedagogy at grand scale. I acknowledge all that, and I applaud serious efforts to make the Summa teach in the present. Still, ignoring the structure of the Summa has consequences. For example, it has fueled a centuries-long effort to separate out the book's philosophy from its theology. The effort varies, of course, with the locally prevailing version of philosophy. We have gone over the last centuries from Cartesian Thomism to Anglo-American analytic Thomism, which is as close to a contradiction in terms as I hope to get this evening. Um, all these philosophical Thomisms ignore the structure of the Summa, in which Thomas deliberately leaves behind his earlier effort to separate philosophy within a unitary theological curriculum. He had attempted that in the so-called Summa Against the Gentiles, and he gave it up because it didn't work. The breakpoint for Thomas, incidentally, is not where you'd expect it. It's, it doesn't have to do with whether you can rationally demonstrate the existence of God um, or whether you can make sense of physical causality without God. The breakpoint for Thomas is the description of human life. You, in fact, cannot give a coherent description of human life using only philosophy. Another consequence of the forgetfulness about the structure is to miss the interdependence of the Summa's main parts. For example, the moral teaching in the second part is not meant to stand on its own as complete, much less as a complete system. It is meant to show at many points the moral need for an incarnate redeemer and continuing bodily sacraments, which Thomas presents only in the third part. My book tries to resist the forgetfulness of structure by beginning with the end, the third part, and then showing how it draws the rest of the Summa to itself. A second set of questions animating my book considers Thomas's place in the history of Christian moral teaching. It was a conceit of official Neo-Thomism that Thomas represented a synthesis of all previous Christian thinking. This fantasy is sometimes justified by the scope of citation in the Summa, by its references to hundreds of earlier authors and text. This misses an obvious point. Thomas cites these earlier texts in <coughs> snippets, frequently disregarding their immediate contexts. Indeed, the method of disputation by citing authorities, as the snippets were called, raises more serious questions about moral teaching. Thomas's practice of citation appears to disregard the teaching forms of the earlier texts that he cites. But his greatest predecessors, educated by the forms of Mediterranean ancient philosophy, took teaching forms very seriously indeed, especially in morals. 
They deployed every literary and rhetorical device they inherited or could devise to compose persuasive texts. Thomas acknowledges their rhetorical concerns. He defends the poetry of scripture and says that theology must speak in all the rhetorical modes, in all the voices. How is it then that he chops up texts into little bits? I propose that the best answer to this challenge can be found in Thomas's practice of the disputed question as a scene of instruction. For Thomas, the risk of piecemeal citation is counterbalanced by the performance of theological teaching. By its unique relation to historical time, by its reliance on reiterating sacramental practice, by its constant invocation of the Holy Spirit. A pope is supposed to have said of Thomas's writing, quote, articuli tot miracula, each article is a miracle. I would say each article is a deed of teaching in which snippets of text are joined in and to the wholeness of theology, which requires an act of faith received by grace. It is an interesting and important question what happens to the Summa when we teach it outside those conditions, say in a classroom in Andover Hall. I worry a lot about that question and not only with regard to the Summa. I suggest we should think more about how our scenes of instruction at HDS do and do not respect the scenes of instruction staged by the texts we teach. Which brings me to the third and last set of questions circling over the book. I've been reading the Summa of Theology for a long time now. I wrote half of my undergraduate essay on some passages in it, my master's thesis on others, and then my dissertation on its sister work, that same Summa Against the Gentiles, since taking my PhD, I've committed the sins of writing three books on Thomas and several dozen articles. Looking back over all that scribbling, I have to ask myself how the lifelong study of Thomas has changed me. For me, it is an inadequate answer to say that this study has given me some technical or historical expertise. I say that in part out of personal conviction, but let me say that aside. Um, even for someone who wants to have an intellectual life, textual expertise is an inadequate motive for reading Thomas over decades. Scholarly domination of a text is at best a preparation for more serious reading. It can also be an act of disrespect masquerading as devotion. Thomas did not conceive the Summa as a trophy for academic experts. He wrote it to assist, so far as humans can, in moral education. Perhaps we can return to some of these questions of the motives and effects in long study in our conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, 
So uh, I guess I was, I did my doctorate on um, Thomas Aquinas at the Gregorian, and I was influenced by Germans, uh, Wolfgang Glückson and Klaus Riesenhuber especially. Um, so, who, well, you'll tell us later, David. Um, so let me say something about how I got involved in reading Thomas so that by my reading your book, it resonates a great deal with my understanding too. And, and I think your book is exceptional. But um, So in 1984, I'm uh, deciding to do my doctorate on Thomas Aquinas and uh, my mentor, Joseph Fuchs, has suggested that I uh, look for the distinction between goodness and rightness. Goodness could be something like charity, um, loving, um, where is your heart, w who are you, uh, what will we be judged by? Um, rightness is uh, how ordered are you, how ordered are your actions, do they help society better? Are your practices that way, are your habits that way, are even your virtues rightly ordered? So the distinction between goodness and rightness was a very big distinction in meta-ethics, if you will, in the 80s and my mentor said, why don't you see whether Thomas has it in the Summa Theologiae. So in 1984, I started reading the Summa. Um, it was a year before IBM came to Italy with computers, so I read it um, with index cards. I had the Latin translation and the English translation in front of me, and I read every question and every article of the three books of the Summa. I kept index cards because that's what one did before 1985. And um, I had about 2,400 index cards at the end of my reading because I, I needed to transcribe what I was reading, both in the Latin and in the English, so that I could understand the text. I, it, was, it was a journey for me. I remember when I first decided to open it up and that I would realize that for the next three or four months, this is what I'd be doing that I literally went down on my knees and prayed uh, for what I was about to do. Um, when I finished it, I threw out the index cards. Um, there was no point uh, for them. And I did find that Thomas had a distinction between goodness and rightness. The measure of charity or the way charity unifies the virtues is very different from the way prudence unifies the virtue. And I began to see a great deal of what Thomas was doing was really rather engaging. I was also interested in different mechanisms that he had. So when you mentioned question uh, nine, article four, about the will moving the reason, um, that's a real breakthrough. Reason Uber does a whole big text on that one article. And uh, so I was looking for how did Thomas change in his arguments over the uh, decades. Afterwards, though, I began to teach Thomas. And the way I studied Thomas was different from the way I would teach him. I would teach, as I've been teaching at, at uh, Boston College, um, the Pars Segunda. It was a reading course of just doctoral students sitting there and reading through the text. And I would try to get people to appreciate how to read Aquinas. I would give a class on what does fit bene mean, um, to act well, to do well. What does doing well really mean for Thomas? It's really kind of critical. All of right action is fit bene, uh, or conveniencia, um, fittingness, that uh, Thomas uses this word really rather distinctively. Um, you begin to see how certain phrases, like the order of execution, 
flips with the order of intention and how he has complacency and concern built into this way so that you can see that the way you intend to do something and reflecting on the way you've done something are two different orders and that you should appreciate perspective. So all during it, it was be tried to understand what is Thomas doing, which is what this book is about. It's, it's instructing us to try to pay attention to what Thomas is doing. Now what I've always said is one of your first um, fables, the, your very first fable. I was very influenced by Leonard Boyle's The Setting of the Summa Theologiae, in which he says basically that the Summa was written for these young men, boys, um, who were Dominicans, who were not going to study at the studia, but were going to study there in Rome at this personal studium that he had created. And in a way, he is directing them, but I always thought for their cognitive function or cognitive understanding of the theological tradition. You've said to me, no, he's done this for their own personal and for our personal training, for our to understand how it is that Christ has been teaching us and that that's what theology is all about. It's about a moral formation. Um, and I began by reading your book to see how true that was that Thomas, who's very impersonal, I mean, it's hard to find a self-reflective moment anywhere in the text. Uh, occasionally, he, he trashes canon lawyers, but that's <laughs> about it, and that doesn't say much about anyone. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that you took us into a whole different realm of the function of the Summa. Um, you know, I have this one question that I'd like you to respond to about Erasmus that I mentioned that Erasmus has the understanding of, of, uh, of, of Christ as the teacher. Uh, and, and that's the best way to understand what is Erasmus trying to convey. I've never heard Thomas being considered as Christ as teacher, that everything about him, he's the exemplar, and how he sees and what he does is to be instructive, this moral formation of the t text. Um, so I'd be curious to see how you see, you know, this, this function of Christ, because what you, you strike me as doing is talking about how the text forms us by our reading of the text. But behind that is the whole point of that formation, and that is to get to Christ once you begin at, with the pause tertia, so that we see who Christ is and what the sacraments are. So I found, um, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in you saying more about Christ the teacher as well as the text being teacher. I don't want to go any much longer. I have two other points to make, but I wanted to do a reading, uh, but I won't. Uh, a reading, uh, but I can exhort you to, in getting the book, to check two passages. Um, but the book is beautifully written. Um, there's a, a certain way that in order to get us to appreciate that we should allow the Summa to form us, you have to lead us the way Thomas led us. So, and, and in fact, in your ingenious um, uh, way of having us start with the, the pause tertia, um, you, you, you start training us so that we can read Thomas well. 
I've decided that when I do m my next book on uh, Aquinas, I'll make this required reading first. So that, because I think what you do is you instruct how Thomas should be read, at least in the Summa, and what he's achieved there. And therefore, you've, you've said something about what it means to read fairly and correctly. Um, there's some interesting work that's happening in scripture uh, scholarship today. I was thinking of the work of Gina Hens Piazza, and she writes about reading texts justly, reading the biblical texts justly. Like when you read the book of Ruth, and you read and you keep talking about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, why are you so exclusive and not talking about other characters in the text? Why are you so hegemonistic that you only look at the people with power and not at all the others that she calls cameo appearances or <laughs> second rung or these other men members of the cast? And she exhorts us that you cannot understand a text unless you read it justly. I think what you've done is re read the text justly in order to take us to a particular place. Um, so there were two texts that I thought were really significant in the beginning. And he has this wonderful section um, on seeing gospel stories. So it's filled with narrative. And with Thomas, there's not a lot of narrative. Uh, and this chapter is the chapter where Mark has a lot of narrative. But it's two lovely texts, one on page 37, why Christ never wrote. It's a key question for somebody who's saying that the text that Thomas wrote is instructive so that you can understand the teachings of the one who never wrote. Um, it's a great two paragraphs, and it captures, I think, in Mark's style and in what he, and the way he leads us, an appreciation of uh, what the Summa is about. And the second is just after that, and it's about Mary and the place of Mary in the Summa, and how Mary uh, becomes um, has to become a teacher effectively. But where does Thomas treat her first as a learner, you call her? Um, and it's in the Annunciation. And he does these, uh, again on page 40, uh, these beautiful um, expressions of, of what it is and how she is being instructed and what it is she learns so that she can teach. Um, that, that, that way of like the order of exegetium being like the order of um, intention, um, that back and forth, that how to be a teacher by first being a learner. When do you start being a learner by first being a teacher? These, these twinnings that you do all through the book, this twinnings all over, I found it fascinating that you, you talked about union. I always talk about union when talking about charity because Thomas really talks about charity as union. But you get to the incarnation, because you've gone there first, and uh, you bring out union. But in order to talk about Christ, we need to talk about union, but to talk about charity. But we can't get to Christ except for through charity. But when we get to Christ, we do get charity. So this, this twinning of concepts that you have implicitly, at times I, uh, I saw it kind of surfacing, and I, uh, I enjoyed that much. I'll just say that at the end, I think your thesis that the Summa is to be read and that in the reading we're formed, um, that that's Thomas's purpose. And <coughs> it's a thesis that I'll love to see what Thomas scholars have to say. But I, for one, am really illuminated <coughs> by it. Thank you.
Well, thank all. Of, I, I want to thank all of you for being here, and Charlie, thank you very much for putting this together. And Jim, it's it's an honor to do this with you. And and Mark, thank you for the occasion to gather together and think collectively about Thomas, which seems like a very Thomistic thing for us to be doing. The book is characteristically lucid, thoughtful, provocative, and humane. And one of the things that Mark wants to do most of all is to propel us into rereadings of Thomas. And if you were to step into my office right now, he, he talks a lot also about scenes, scenes of formation. My office is a scene of Thomism right now with commentaries strewn across the desk, Thomas's commentaries that is, the Summa open in its various volumes sitting in various places. So it propelled me back into the text, which was a most welcome Thing in the midst of, of, of the rest of, of what we call the scholarly life. So what I want to do in, in this brief time is nothing more than to raise, I think, three questions if, if time ends up allowing. But I think these questions, at least I hope, take us close to the heart of what I think Mark is trying to do in the book. The first question is about what the, what the summa is for. The second question is about the portrait of Christ that we get in Mark's book. And then the final question is about method. And, and with each question, there is a worry on my part. There's a worry in the first place about inflation, the inflation of this text. There's a worry in the second place about a deflation a deflation of Thomas's portrait of Christ and Christ's work, and then finally, a worry perhaps about constriction. But to begin, I want to ask this, this first question about what the Summa is for exactly. And, and this question unfolds attending to the ends of the Summa and also to its means. So what exactly does Thomas mean to affect by the Summa? Well, one answer is that he means to affect moral formation or something like Christian moral formation. And that's one of the answers that this book gives. But I want to ask for some further clarity and specificity about that. Because I think everyone would agree that Thomas ultimately wants by his writing and by all that he does to call human beings into deeper fellowship with the triune God. But one of the most important things that the Summa teaches us when it comes to thinking about what we do is that our immediate or our proximate ends matter. That I do something for some more distant end is worth caring about. But it never erases the significance of what I'm immediately trying to do when I set out to do something. And so my question is about Thomas's proximate end in writing the Summa. And we can imagine here something like a, a scale with, a, with a, one end, something like a minimalist vision of what Thomas is trying to do and on the other end, something like a maximalist vision of what Thomas is trying to do. 
On the minimalist vision, all that Thomas is seeking to do is to convey a certain content. That's it. He wants to pass on certain knowledge to learners. On the maximalist end, what Thomas is trying to do is insofar as to the extent that any human being can, he is trying to affect or midwife spiritual formation and growth in his auditors or eventually his readers. And I am not sure exactly where on that scale Mark finally wants to place Thomas in relation to exactly what he's trying to do, but I take it that it's fairly close to that maximalist vision. That is, that he wants, he imagines Thomas as wanting, insofar as it's humanly possible, to do all that he can to cause his hearers and readers to become more Christ-like. Now, I think, though, that there is a difficulty if, if this is indeed what it's being claimed that Thomas is trying to do. That difficulty has to do in the first place with what Thomas does not say in the Summa. So if we thought that Thomas was most of all in the Summa trying to affect and bring about spiritual formation, then I would think that in a Summa that is dealing with such formation, something like the teaching of theology and its importance to that formative work would figure prominently. And yet there's very little about the work of teaching theology or learning theology in the Summa. There's much more about the ordinary and mundane means by which we become courageous or just or temperate. But if we, let's say we leave that aside. One of the most important distinctions Thomas draws in the Prima Secunda, and it carries through to the Secunda Secunda, is a distinction between moral and intellectual virtue. All virtue is a good habit. What is particular about intellectual virtue is that it's a habit of thinking well and doing so with ease, at will. And in particular, we might think of something like geometry or metaphysics as, or philosophical theology of a certain sort as being an intellectual virtue if one has the right kind of command of that sort of thinking. In distinction from intellectual virtue, Thomas wants to talk and talks much more about moral virtue. And what marks moral virtue off from intellectual virtue is that moral virtue is a habit whereby simply possessing the habit inclines one to use it and to use it exclusively for good ends. Let me explain. To have the habit of justice is not merely to have the capacity to do just things. It is to have a love of justice so that by having that habit, by the very having of it, one is inclined to use it and to use it exclusively for just ends and to use it justly. In contrast, to have a habit of metaphysics or of philosophical theology 
in and of itself does nothing to incline us to use that very habit, let alone to use that habit well or for good ends. So if we grasp the contours of this distinction, the question that then arises is, if Thomas is caring about moral formation in relation to the Summa, what kind of virtue is he meaning to instill in his auditors? Everything that Thomas tells us about moral virtue is that it's not the sort of thing that can be had by, at least without a, a lot of qualifications added, by the work of reading a book and even reading it in community, though that can become the occasion for the acquisition of moral virtues. Rather, moral virtues for Thomas are worked out in the warp and woof of mundane life, in friendships, in, in dealing with the obnoxious brother Dominican that is right down the hall, in sharing meals together, of, in dealing with the way that he intones the psalms in a, in a way that grates on one's nerves. It's in, it's in that work that one engages in the disciplining of appetite and most of all will, whereby one begins to make progress in the acquisition of virtue. Now, suppose that we say that what, and I think that this is what the book wants to suggest, suppose we say that, well, what Thomas wants to instill most of all by the Summa is, is sapientia, wisdom. And, and, and if we imagine that wisdom is an intellectual virtue, we can notice that in certain places, Thomas talks about the way in which wisdom has a practical dimension. Now, the problem is that the kind of practical dimension wisdom has is the wrong sort for bringing us in the zone of moral virtue. And the other problem is that the kind of wisdom that, that might bring us close to the zone of moral virtue is just not the kind that can be had by the study of a text or it's being taught. It's a kind that can only be, ha be had Thomas thinks, by an infusion of grace and as a gift from God. In fact, I, I, I gave a little handout for us to look at of just a few texts where Thomas draws this very distinction. And maybe this is a very Thomistic thing to do. I'm, I'm not sure. In, in the first of these texts, Thomas draws a distinction between two kinds of wisdom. This is at the very outset of the Summa, where he's asking the question, what is sacra doctrina, or holy teaching? The Summa is holy teaching. What does it mean that this is holy teaching? And is this kind of holy teaching a sort of wisdom? And he draws a distinction, namely a distinction between something that is acquired by study and something that is acquired by a divine gift. And what Sacra Doctrina is, what the Summa is, you'll see in the bottom part of that first quote, is a capacity to draw right conclusions through the intellectual work of 
reasoning about who God is and how all things are rightly related to God. But it's a different thing to know the answers to those questions than it is to be inclined to give those answers purchase on one's life, let alone to have the kind of infused habit of wisdom that could cause one to increase in the sort of Christ-likeness that ultimately Thomas wants for us. At one point, later on in the Secunda Secunda, this is the second quote, Thomas asks the question whether mortal sin is compatible with wisdom. All right, and this presses on precisely the question of what he is about in the Summa. Now, what he ends up saying is that there is a kind of wisdom, a kind that helps maybe in some way incline us to the good and and the triune God who is that good source. And that kind of wisdom is not compatible with moral sin. But, But he says, there's another kind of wisdom. And it's the kind that the Summa identifies itself explicitly as pursuing that is indeed compatible with mortal sin. And I think if we step back we, and, and reflect honestly about the character of the university, we find among us many who are wise in all kinds of, of different sorts of ways about all kinds of different sorts of things, but who are vicious through and through. We may even think of ourselves as falling into that category. If, if the Summa is about the work of, of moral formation, then it sits in uneasy relation to what Thomas has to say about the relationship between intellectual and moral virtue. So that's, that's my, first, my first question. The, the other questions are brief. Central to, if, if, that, if that first question is about the end of the Summa, another question has to do with the means whereby Thomas is trying to affect whatever formation he means to affect. And here the book writes beautifully about the centrality in the tertiaparse, the third part of the Summa, of Thomas's account of Christ's life and the narrative work that unfolds there and this as being an important scene of of instruction for Aquinas. Yet, the book faces a difficulty at that point because it needs to explain why this narrative material is confined to just this one part and why it doesn't run through and through. And the book has interesting and helpful things to say about why that might be, but I think it faces a, a greater challenge still. Thomas was a preacher. And if we look at his sermons, in particular, his sermons that were preached in the vernacular. So these are sermons preached not to the learned, but to the ordinary lay folk. His sermons are distinguished by an aversion to the use of exempla. That is, as compared even to his Dominican counterparts, there is very little use of narrative in them. And instead, his focus tends to be, rather than on preaching from gospel texts, he tends to preach on things like the Our Father, 
the Ten Commandments, or the Credo. And when he does, he, rather than drawing from the readily available compendiums that Dominicans had put together of narrative lives that were meant to inspire people, he instead focuses on unfolding the rational beauty of, of these texts with little, little reference to these other exemplar, these exempla. Here, here's what one scholar had to say about this. Even more rhetorically austere than most Dominicans, the, describing Thomas, he's extremely sparing in his use of exempla, which features so prominently in much 13th century preaching, and which were assiduously gathered by the Dominicans into exemplaria, collections intended to provide a body of illustrative stories upon which the preacher could draw. For Thomas, however, it seems that the attractive force of Christianity by which people were drawn to faith was not to be found in exemplary stories, but in the profound fittingness of Christian truth itself, a fittingness his preaching seeks to display by articulating the rational patterns within revealed truth. So the question then arises, if, if these scenes of formation and these narratives are so central to Thomas, in, in his vision of moral formation, why do they not figure more prominently in his preaching? My, my final question turns to the place of, of Christ as portrayed in, in the book. And, and if my first question worries about a kind of inflation of the Summa's ambition, this question expresses a worry about potentially a suppression or deflation of the fullness of its picture of Christ. The book does a wondrous job of depicting something that is absolutely central to Thomas's vision of Christ. That is Christ as the great and divine teacher. And, and the book rightly notes Thomas's use of Augustine to describe, Tom, to describe Christ crucified as the teacher sitting in the teacher's chair. So this is, this is absolutely central. But what I worry goes missing from in, in this picture we get is, is a vision of Christ as also aiming to free from sin and to give human beings access to God. These are the two other important things aside from proclaiming truth that Tama identifies as central to who he imagines Christ to be and what he imagines Christ to accomplish. So, so when the book says things like the following, that the crucifixion, the, the crucifixion, quote, reminds fallen humans of truths they'd rather forget, or that only the crucifixion can capture human attention and persuade cynical observers, or it, it offers moral teaching for savage souls that can still learn from what they see. I worry that this portrait touches up upon semi-Pelagianism in a way that Thomas would not be happy with. It makes Jesus sound more like Flannery O'Connor's famous depiction of drawing in broad, vivid brushstrokes to awaken people to see the truth, which is a part of what Thomas envisions Christ doing. But Thomas also envisions human beings as dead in sin and transgression, and as needing an infusion or gift of divine grace, so much as to be able to see the sort of thing 
whereby they might, they might be awakened. And the lengthy passage at the bottom, I won't read it from the commentary on Ephesians, gives some sense of this portrait. So uh, I'll, I'll close here only by saying th- that one possibility between sort of the minimalist and maximalist reading of the Summa is one that understands Thomas as indeed caring about more than simply giving a content, but not, not caring about or thinking that by the Summa he could accomplish a sort of moral formation, but instead that imagines him as trying to give young Dominicans a vision of a particularly fitting way, a Christian way, to do the work of theology itself. That he's not merely meaning to give a content, but he's meaning to give a vision for a way of doing theology that is itself conveniens in relationship to the one who ultimately that theology tries to speak about. Only because I'm going to say uh, first thanks to both for the careful reading. Um, both Jim and David pointed to the question of how texts teach, especially how texts teach in an economy of grace. That does seem to me to be the essential question in the in the Summa, um, and I take it that it's a it's a complicated question and it's a question that reaches out to a number of other things, a number of other sorts of texts. So for example while it is true that we learn moral virtues by practice, by being down in the nitty gritty of life it's also true that Aristotle wrote the Nicomachean Ethics um, because there's some usefulness in speech about Um, moral virtues. Now what exactly that usefulness is, what exactly the relation of the Nicomachean ethics is to habituation, that's a a good and complicated question. Um, But but it also, I think that question also reaches out to the use of, to the reading of scripture in Christian liturgy. Because our liturgy is centrally about being instructed by texts. But maybe we can come back around that again. Um, I take David's point about intellectual virtue, um, but I don't think these passages are describing what's happening in the Summa. Um, One of the striking features of the organization of the second part of the Summa is that Thomas collapses the intellectual virtues into the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He, he sets some of them aside and says these are not of concern to theology. And the rest he uh, annexes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in fact, Thomas erases, structurally speaking, the significant distinction between the moral and intellectual um, virtues in the sense that he treats the intellectual virtues under the corresponding gifts of the Spirit. Why then, I think 
David, it's quite right to ask this. Why then doesn't he talk more about what it is to do theology or teach theology? To which I would say he shows it on every page, right? It, he's not talking about it. He's actually doing it. Um, yeah, and about, about um, the question of Christ, this will be the last thing I'll say, but, but this is important. I emphatically agree with what David said. And, I'm, and my point is not at all to make Christ just the teacher, um, just the bearer of a message, which is why I go on from the description of the narrative of Christ's life into the treatment of the sacraments, which for Thomas are the extension of Christ's teaching and also of Christ living with us as a friend <laughs> into the present time. Though, but those remarkable passages in, in which Thomas talks about the the passion is Thomas trying to explain why God chose such a violent means of death for Christ, given that it was within God's justice to accept any sort of sacrifice or any sort of repentance in order to grant salvation. Why choose such a violent form of execution to which Thomas says, that's not about God, that's about us. Only that level of violence gets our attention, right? So I, David's quite right. I mean, I strongly emphasize that, but I emphasize that as part of the embodied teaching of Christ. And that marvelous quotation that Thomas takes from Augustine in which the cross becomes the teacher's cathedra, becomes the teacher's chair, right? That to me, again, is the teaching there is not words. The teaching is the body hanging on the cross. So a lot of what I'm after is, uh, is to bring forward the tacit or embodied elements of Christian teaching. But let me stop there, and we can do the rearrangement of chairs, the ritual rearrangement of chairs. <laughs> and we can then open this to all of you. I'm going to do something I haven't yet done, which is ask the first question, <laughs> uh, or rather call attention to a question that David posed. Um, and Mark, you promised in your remarks to circle back to it. This will be brief, and then everyone else, please, um, w uh, uh, I'll call on you, uh, just because I have a higher perch than perhaps Mark does sitting down. Um, reading bears an enormous uh, weight in your reading of Thomas, that is the practice of reading, as um, as David has called attention to, and I noticed it such that at a certain paragraph, I think this one is on page nine. I just started circling the word reading or readers, and there were eight instances of it in a single paragraph, and I didn't carry on to see whether any other paragraph could beat eight. Uh, maybe there were ten or twelve in another, but but it proves the it it it, it highlights the point. That um, you that I think David has has brought our attention to that is um, the practice of reading on your view the reading of the Summa is doing an enormous amount of work it's what Thomas seems to want his audience most to do and I took David to be challenging that view um, and I'm wondering if we could just start this off by exploring that challenge a bit more. Sure, let me say just a few things and then we can open up. So uh, I, I say that 
in the book that it's actually very hard to know how Thomas meant the Summa to be taught. It, it, we have a, a few other texts by him, especially the beginning of a revision of his commentary on the census that he wrote at the private school that was given him. I think of it as Thomas's experimental school in Rome. Um, and what we see there, at least on my reading, are, is a kind of skeleton outline rather than a developed text. So it's, it's as if what Thomas is sketching out are the notes in the way you would have a skeleton sermon you might have a skeleton set of notes that would then be reactivated in the class as the class proceeded. It may be that the Summa was meant to be used in that way. And I think actually there's a good case for thinking of it, especially of the first part of the Summa that way. It's extremely abbreviated. It's almost telegraphic in certain sections. And it seems to me it's, it's Thomas <coughs> just saying, look, these are the standard auctoritates, here are the standard questions. You can use this as you like. I, by the time he gets into the secunda, Thomas's, I think, manner of writing changes. And it looks more like a full text um, that is, I think, meant to be read. I regard that as mood in the sense of I don't think we have enough historical evidence. But what we do know is that the tradition of reception has been a tradition of reading. Um, and since one of the questions, as I said, for myself was, so what does it mean that I've spent uh, 45 years reading the Summa? What does that mean ethically? Um, that's a question. That, that's why there's eight readers in that passage. One thing to say about that, I think, and one thing that Mark does really nicely in the book, and I think he's entirely right about this, it, one response to the objection that Thomas's theology is insufficiently Christological because it's delayed to the tertiary parts. One of the things he says is, look, you've got to remember that this summa was unfolding in a sacramentally suffused context of formation. And I think my one way to describe my worry is that in the absence of that robust, rich, and sacramental community, are we asking or expecting or projecting hopes onto the Summa beyond what Thomas imagined it as capable of, of, of doing? And I think it, particularly as teachers who spent our life with texts, it is, it, it is a, I would like to think that all the reading that I'm doing is making me a better parent, a better friend. A be I'm not certain that that it is, and and so I agree in with with Mark that yes, this discourse about ethics has value, and it has value in certain respects, and maybe helping us in our process of growing ethically. But I think it's a very circumscribed and complicated way in which it does that work, at least as, at least as I read Thomas as understanding it. So I'm going to take a different approach and take more of a historical one, actually following up on the point you just made, um, you know, about the difference between the pause prima and the pause segunda, because what, 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 we, what Leonard Boyle and others, Terrell and others posit, is that this does seem to be written in Rome. 
it seems to be written for a group of Dominicans who are not going to be sent to the university, but they, it's, it's an experiment that Thomas has, and he's been given authority by a Dominican chapter at Anyani. He's been told that he can instruct a group of young Dominicans who don't have the capacity to go to Bologna or to Paris or to Montpellier, but who have the capacity to do something good ministerially. And he's deciding he wants to do this experiment. Why not have more competent? Because at that point, they're basically doing the summa confessorum. They're trying to learn how to hear confessions. And he wants to give them theology. So he's giving it to young Dominicans for their formation. And so I've always read it that way until I read the beginning of your, the way you kind of poo-poo it. Um, and I was kind of like, I'm, I'm surprised because I think it's a fairly cogent thing. But what happens is that um, he, he's called to Paris. And so he arrives in Paris and he, we don't know, we know that the question nine, article four, is um, a, a question that has come under judgment, um, the question about whether the will uh, can move the reason. Um, and that and that Albert has contact with him, um, and that he's been warned that he could be condemned by the Bishop of Paris, and that suddenly he has a change in in his way of thinking in Article Nine that hasn't been in his previous pause prima. So everybody suggests that he begins then to write the pause segunda for this more educated group of Dominicans. So one of the things is, why is there a change in the text? There's a change in the audience and the competency of the audience. In the first pause, it's basically for these people to help them be trained to be good pastoral ministers. In the second, to be scholars. And he's going to do a more expansive stuff. What I found really compelling, and this is where when you started, I was like, I don't agree. Um, he is doing theology. There's something about what he's doing rather than writing. And that's what I kept getting. You know, I, was, I kept thinking of, you know, he makes the distinction between what uh, imminent and, and um, what am I looking for? Transient and imminent. And, and what I've always thought of is he's trying to give us knowledge. He's trying to give us knowledge, uh, this cognitive formation that we get our ideas right. But as a matter of fact, he's doing something that happens to us that we start doing something. So learning the virtues is I think he's giving us skills for reflecting on how it is that we can become more virtuous. It's not just simply so that we can teach it, but that we can do it. So I do think that there's something imminent about the reading of the text. I think there's something virtuous about reading the text. And that's what you bring to us, at least in your argument, that no one that I know of before, I think everybody would agree with you. Well, that's why I said at the end of my remarks, I want to see what the other Thomas say. I think many of them would say what you're saying. I don't agree. I do think that what you've done is suggest that there's something much more transformative and performative in the doing of the text, and therefore in the reading. That there is a theology going on, yeah, but, but it's, in, it's doing. But there being, it's one question to ask, and I agree, there's theology going on. Another, some of us would like to think that by the doing of theology, I mean, one vision of theology is that by doing it, one is becoming holy, or that to do it requires that one be possessed of the theological virtues or have charity. When Thomas says what sacra doctrina is, he says this doctrine is acquired by, by reason and by argument. 
And so I agree, he is performing something in the totality of the, of the Summa. He's teaching what it, how to do theology Christianly, but to have a love, it's a different thing to have a love for the God about whom this theology is speaking. And only if that's present can this do more than fall on, on fallow ground. Yeah, that's, I mean, just as for Aristotle, the ethics, if you haven't been brought up in the right way, sitting in on this, on this course of ethics isn't going to do anything to help you. If you're not, for Thomas, sacramentally formed, if you're not possessed of the virtues, of the theological virtues, then this, this reading in this work is, in, it may help you cognitively, but I think you'd be skeptical that it can help you spiritually or morally. And that's why I say I think the audience counts. Who is he, who is he writing for? He's writing for fellow Dominicans in their formation. And, and you say studium, but he does say that the acquisition of virtue is through studium et exercitium. And I do think he sees that the fundamental instruction, this fundamental studium that's going on here is is constitutive of the studium and exegesis for the acquisition of all formations of the virtues. Maybe we could uh, yeah. open it up to questions from the audience. Francis. Yeah, um, thanks. Um, my question comes from someone who's a non-medievalist. You know, and the one text most non-medieval fell in the Middle Ages, besides Anselm, is the Summa. And you, you've read lots of it. And you, no one has ever read Peter Lombard's Sententiae or very little unless you're a medievalist. And so in hearing your exposition of, of the skill in Thomas and Blakey's teaching and what that comes from, why do you think the Summa took a couple of centuries in order to become as widespread read? Was it because of the political uh, things that James uh, alluded to in terms of the Bishop of Paris, you could see from a, from a well, natural, you should have been a, a, most people teaching theology might have preferred this as a textbook over using uh, Lombard's sentences. Do you have any thoughts about that? I do, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're, in, in some way, they're, they're pessimistic about the reception history. So just for those of you who are not in the, these debates, um, within three years of Thomas's death, um, some of his some of his uh, statements were included in a list of 217 propositions condemned by the Archbishop of Paris. He was not named because of the because the order managed to keep his name out of the document. Um, but they were condemned there. There were also a shorter list was condemned by a Franciscan, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? And some people think that the condemnations of 1277 had a significant chilling effect, not just on the reception of Thomas, but on the treatment of controversial issues in all theology for about 50 years afterwards. But Thomas was canonized within 50 years of his death. And he was canonized because the Dominicans got behind him, made him the standard teacher for the order, and then persuaded the papacy that he should be the standard teacher, period. And then what happens if you look at the iconography of Thomas, if you look at uh, 
paintings done, for example, within two decades of canonization, he looks like any other Dominican friar with a halo on, right? Just a little halo. You go 50 years after that, and you see Thomas sitting on a huge bishop's chair, flanked by biblical authors <laughs> on both directions, with Christ above and the Holy Spirit descending. <laughs> and so what you begin to see is the enormous development of the cult of Thomas Aquinas as the patron of learning. And so you go into the Renaissance painting, he's no longer flanked by biblical authors, he's flanked by the seven liberal arts, right? And with Plato and Aristotle, uh, one on each side, and with Averroes under his feet, <laughs> right? Um, so there is this huge cultic development of Thomas. And I think it's really after that, and because of the reforms of the Dominican educational system, that by the time of the Council of Trent, Thomas is simply the authority in the schools. And that really lasts for 400 years. That lasts until 1965, right, to the end of the Second Vatican Council and that reassessment. My own understanding um, is that in some sense, Thomas became authoritative by being completely misread, right? It, it was the view somehow that Thomas provided a codification of orthodoxy that allowed the Summa to be used and imposed. It doesn't. He didn't. He didn't want that. So uh, I tend to regard most of the history of Thomism as a long misreading. I, I add that, you know, in the, when he's canonized, you know, he still is, his thesis is still considered condemned. So I mean, there's a certain way that his positions as heretical are ignored in his canonization. There was no lifting up. There was no attempt to change uh, these judgments. Later, about 25, 30 years later, after the canonization, Duranus de saint Poussin tries to have Thomas removed from the Dominican um, position of authority that it had. And Herveus Natalis, the master general, dismisses him from the Dominican order. So, I mean, it's rather interesting to see how in the 14th century, the Dominicans completely rallied around Thomas very effectively, uh, to Durandus's surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and discomfiture. Yes. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Thank you so much for this discussion. It's been really enlightening. Um, I was wondering, um, Mark, if you had any comments or ideas around how perhaps um, your uh, like own history of publishing has influenced this book. So I guess um, I'm really curious about how, I guess in your corpus, if we can call that, <laughs> if I dare, um, there's been a turn towards perhaps contemporary life, perhaps queerness, um, perhaps sexual ethics within you know maybe the last 15 to 20 years. Um, and this book, at least to me, seems really influenced by that, at least implicitly and perhaps explicitly even. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about the process of writing this book, sort of how your own evolution as a scholar has has impacted it. And for the, um, for the two respondents, I guess I'm curious if um, that's changed the way that you would read a text like this or um, something along those lines. That's a, that's a very interesting question, and, and I, I, I'll say a few things, but I think what I really want to do is think about that. Um, 
because in some in some respects what this felt like to me was bringing to a close decades of reading and saying this is what I got <laughs> this is what I can give you um, you all do what comes next <laughs> this is as far as I got by trying to read the Summa um, and so in some ways I deliberately avoided I kept out many contemporary voices that I would otherwise would have brought in um, there's a few inevitable references to Foucault, you know, that, but that's just because Foucault is everywhere. And, uh, but, it, but I did realize in the course of writing it that, um, of course, my deeper prejudices about reading come through. And one of the things I do is to quote this uh, when I was a um, sophomore, junior in college. I, I hacked my way through Bernard Lonergan's essays on the doctrine of the verbum in Thomas Aquinas that uh, Dave Burrell, who was later my colleague at Notre Dame, had just edited. I don't think I understood 5% of that text. I, I underlined practically every line and made pencil annotations. I didn't understand a word of what Lonergan was saying. But I thought, this is the person I want to study Aquinas with. I didn't realize that at that time he had, as it were, retired to it. Jesuit House of Studies in Canada. So I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter. And with an, with an incomparable generosity, he answered. Um, and he laid out again his method for reading Thomas, which was about how to trace Thomas's dynamic thinking through a series of texts. So to watch what's changing. With this book, it became really clear to me that I respect Lonergan, his erudition about Thomas is extraordinary, his effort to revivify Thomas as a living intellectual presence, yes, and that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is not the evolution in Thomas's thought across text, I'm interested in the shape of this one text. And as many of you know, that of course is my obsession because I think it's the thing that always drops out. It's the thing we never pay attention to because we're always pulling out little pieces or thinking about concepts and isms or where does this fit in my general narrative history. But the actual shape of the text. Yeah, let me talk about something. <laughs> I've been thinking, I, the book I want to write is Teaching Aquinas, and or Teaching the Summa, and you're, you've done a book reading the Summa. Um, and this goes back to my earlier comment that with Thomas is always the order of execution, the order of attention. He's always saying the end and the beginning. You know, when he uses the end, like when you were talking about the proximate end, you know, you, you can always try to, you can never figure out what he means by the end. Is it in the beginning or is it at the end? But there's that flip. So I think I was really struck by what you did and how much what you were doing and the reading of the Summa helps me to understand what I want to do with the teaching of the Summa. Um, and I don't, and I do think they flip with one another, but they're, they're, they're almost like this notion of union you were talking about rather than this notion of identity. Um, so I think I've I, I been really formed by that. I was joking that uh, I said to Mark when I came in, I said, you know, I re reviewed the invention of sodomy and Christian theology. I, I, I 
commented and wrote on your second book on sodomy and all, and I said, and here I am, responding to your book on Aquinas. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> so in a way, it makes sense. I love your question, because it makes me think further as to how this fits in with the way Marcus influenced my thinking on a variety of topics. Thank you. I'll, I'll just say one thing. I mean, my, my first book, it, and it's on Aquinas, it's called Ethics as a Work of Charity, and it's part of the, one of the central ideas of the book is that what Thomas does in the Summa by its construction and by the choices he makes is shows us what it would mean to do ethical inquiry in a charitable mode. And that, so in, in all my sort of wanting to deflate on one level, on another level, I think, I do think there's a, a kind of formation happening, okay? But I think, I think it's a formation of inquiry and a formation of, of inquirers. But that can become, when it falls on the right soil, that can become something much more than that. And so I think that, I think there's a lot, I mean, Donald Davidson would remind us that that disagreement is always a minuscule thing on a massive substratum of agreement. And I think what you're witnessing is some actual disagreement, but that's only made possible, as opposed to just talking past, that's only made possible by, I think, a very deep background of agreement. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for uh, really a wonderful book. Enjoyed reading it a lot, and uh, I'm going to ask obviously a question that comes with absolutely no knowledge or experience at all. Um, but you mentioned um, in the conclusion there is a, a remarkable sentence uh, where I think you say something like Aquinas didn't really mean to create job opportunities for exegetes, yes. um, which is very interesting because you start the book by thinking about okay, this is how I'm reading Aquinas. So I, I'm going to ask about this, but first I'm going to exegete one uh, word in your title, which is the word formation. And, and the way I'm thinking about it is that it includes this process of iterative making as opposed to simply instruction. So I want to ask about, um, although the book is focusing on the reading, but I want to ask about the writing itself, how you think about the writing as a process of ethical formation. Is Aquinas showing a mode of ethical formation through his own writing. Are we supposed to write this? Are we supposed to write similar things? Or are we supposed to learn from the mode of writing? And I'm asking this question, again, as a medievalist, with attention to this very physical mode of writing a book like this at this particular time, which requires a very specific mode, you know, a habitus of sitting down and writing and commenting and reading out loud, etc. And then, Another connected question, which is related now to the question of reading, is also about the formation of reading. I mean, you, you talk about how we're supposed to read it in order to fully appreciate it, but are we physically supposed to read it in a particular way? Do you think that, that the text is instructing us to form a particular mode of physical reading, if you will, an ethical physical reading? And the final question, which goes back to the, to the idea of exegesis and touches on um, 
the sort of your invitation to read it as a whole as opposed to read it in pieces. Now, I wanna one I wonder about the pieces instead of being cut and taken from context, but rather as sort of as what Lyotard would say, petit récit, basically, or little narratives that end up creating an infrastructure or a network that makes the text. So how do you see the reading of these little pieces have made the whole as opposed to the other? So you know, we're more used to thinking about the pieces are coming out of the whole. But is there a way of thinking about the whole as emerging out of these pieces and in their exegetical <coughs> re right, uh, reading, rather, over time? Yes, thank you. Um, a beautiful questions. One of the one of the questions you have to uh, answer when you pick up the Summa is why Thomas chose to write it in the form that he did. That is, why does he choose to make each article a simplified version of the, this, of the disputed question, which was of a ritualized form of debate mm -hmm. that was the main form of instruction for advanced students in medieval universities across all fields. And I think the answer to that goes to exactly what you're saying. A disputed question is, a, is an activity. A written disputed question is an imitation, a verbal imitation, of a classroom activity, which has a propulsive end, if that makes sense. You come to the end of a question, and you don't stop. You're propelled on to the next question. Mm -hmm. And the principle of concatenation <coughs> in the Summa, the principle of putting all these little articles together, is precisely that, that sense of keeping the reader moving. And they're also, it's, it's just, it's like Ptolemy, that, that won't help. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a text in which some things are said in very simplified form early on, and then you go through a process of complication and qualification, and you restate it later. So actually, some of the initial formulations are either partial or indeed incorrect until you get to this end. Yes, and I, I think you also see that in Thomas. So that's the microstructure of the text. It's repeated on every level, moving up. Um, I think learning to read it is learning to read it with a sense of that activity in mind. Um, I think that Thomas's writing, so far as we can reconstruct it, is very much about that. We have a few very precious pages that he wrote in his own hand. They are filled with revisions. Mm. They look like manuscripts by Proust, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's this whole columns where he'll write out the whole thing and then go shh and continue right ahead. So we also see, I think, the writing not as a sort of eternal Kantian mm. text, right? But as this flowing. One last thing. One of the books I most admire is Ronald Syme's book on Tacitus. And the reason is that Syme manages to reproduce in English Tacitus's style. So that in reading the book on Tacitus, or immersed from beginning to end in Tacitus, I don't think I accomplished that in this book. But what I did try to pick up from Thomas was the sense of the courses or the rhythmically stressed, it's a liturgical pattern, but it was used in medieval prose writing. It's a rhythmically stressed pattern of writing that keeps you moving forward. And so that, I think, is also another way in which the writing just keeps the motion going. Stop there. 
I would like to bring the Franciscans into this discussion, <laughs> having spent a lot of my earlier career with them. Would it help uh, to understand what Thomas is trying to do in his Summa by comparing it and contrasting it with a rival contemporary text, Alexander Hales' Summa, which um, for many years the uh, Franciscans used as their magisterial text with no problems about forget, uh, ignoring what uh, Thomas said. Uh, now, I have not studied these two texts. Uh, I mean, I've consulted them, so my, my question is asked out of ignorance of the actual text. But the question is, would it be helpful uh, to compare, it, compare Thomas's text with a contemporary um, analogous text, at least formally analogous, and, form, uh, and in its use? Yes, no, very good question. Again, for those of you who don't um, who don't live in 1240, <laughs> the way some of us do, um, the Summa of Brother Alexander was apparently originally compiled by Alexander, who was one of the Franciscan masters of Paris. It was then edited, redacted by a team probably of four, one of whom was Bonaventure. And so it was a text that was being put together just at the time that Thomas was arriving at Paris for his university studies. I believe that Thomas had the Summa of Alexander on his desk as he was writing his own Summa. And the relation between them is Thomas is much simpler, right? You can see him in effect culling or curating the arguments in Alexander in order to reduce them to, the, to what he considers a more pedagogically transparent Form. What Thomas says in the prologue to the Summa is, we've got all these books, they're useless for teaching beginners because they multiply questions, because they're not arranged properly, because they follow the, the pattern of a text they're commenting on. What I'm going to give you is what you need for Christian religion as babes in Christian religion, right? I don't mean Hollywood starlets, I mean <laughs> infants. Uh -huh. um, Right, so I think that pedagogical motive does really carry. You, you take Alexander and you take Thomas, and Thomas is so much simpler, shorter. Yeah, uh, thanks very much. I have a much more introductory level question as a non-specialist. Um, you talked um, about Thomas's love for Greek philosophers, Aristotle, I assume these are coming to him through um, texts being transferred from the uh, Levant through the Crusades and so forth. And you have this great illustration of uh, 200 years after his death, him being you know, pictured with the, with the seven liberal arts. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about how this text reflects those Greek sources that he was drawing upon? What kinds of questions uh, troubled them that he attempts to answer or, or brings in? What kind of influences exist there as someone who's not read the text? David will also have a lot to say here. Um, let me just say uh, two things. The first is um, Aristotle is the, is the vernacular for the medieval universities in the 13th century. So you're going to talk Aristotle even to criticize Aristotle. Um, and you see this in Bonaventure, who speaks Aristotle really well. 
and who disagrees with Aristotle really strongly about a number of points. That's not the case with Thomas. I mean, Thomas spent a large part of the last decade of his life trying to write um, literal commentaries on the works of Aristotle to make a sense um, of them for use in Christian theology. Um, so in, in one sense, Aristotle's everywhere. Thomas is having new translations of Aristotle made from the Greek because some of the translations he was using were defective or were made from Arabic. Um, he's desperate to get the latest translations of Greek commentaries on Aristotle. So he's completely immersed in that. The other thing I would say is this. In some sense, for Thomas, Aristotle is, I think, not the Greek tradition that he's most interested in when he's writing the Summa. Because if you look at the documentation of the Summa, the largest number of new texts that appear are recently translated Byzantine theologians. Right? So he's, there's this tremendous influx of Byzantine sources in the Summa. And I think one of the basic patterns, especially in the third part of the Summa, is a Byzantine text uh, by John of Damascus, the Orthodox faith, which I think gives Thomas the basic pattern of the third part. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. I mean, I think in a certain way this touches on how Thomas both understands the theological task and how he understands the God in whose service that task is done by Christians who are doing theology. Now, part of what the theological task involves is answering the objections that can be raised to the truth of Christian faith. And Aristotle articulates and raises challenges for Christian faith. I mean, famously, Aristotle's function argument suggests that if something is going to be the end of a given creature, then it's necessarily the case that that creature, by that creature's power, can arrive at that end. Well, if you're a Christian and believe that the end of humanity is fellowship and virtue with the triune God, and that that's only had by that God's giving one grace and rescuing one from sin, then there's a question here. How is this, how is this in fact, the end of this nature? And so that's one of many examples where Thomas is, feels himself, I think, compelled to articulate an answer to these, these questions and these challenges. But I think there's another layer to it as well. I mean, and, and in this respect, Thomas isn't necessarily unique, but I think he is exemplary. That is, and this touches on something that Mark rightly highlights in the book, that, and it emerges in the third part especially, that it's the nature of good to diffuse itself, and the nature of the highest good to diffuse itself maximally. And so the goodness and wisdom and truth of the triune God is shed abroad everywhere, waiting for the inquirer to find it. And so Thomas, I think, and this may be, I don't know if Mark will agree with this, but I do think that Thomas sees Aristotle as perhaps the one of the most rigorous inquirers after truth that has lived. And so it's important to Thomas to pay attention 
to what Aristotle says and, and to the ways in which Aristotle can teach Thomas and teach Christians about who God is. I think one place where this figures especially prominently, though not with Aristotle, but with Cicero, when Thomas talks about the virtue of religion, that, that part of justice that confirms the right kind of pious disposition to God as source and end of all things, he has Cicero as one, Cicero figures as one of the authorities who is teaching us something true about what religion is. Not, not by himself, but that he's there at all. For a certain Christian could be, maybe not in Thomas's movement, but in ours, for a certain Christian could be remarkable or noteworthy. It strikes me, you know, I was thinking of uh, a question that I spend a lot of time in when teaching Thomas is uh, 55.4, uh, is, is uh, virtue correctly defined? And, and so you're looking, well, whose definition is it? And what is the definition? And of course, it's Augustine. Um, you know, so I think that many people do, you know, take the Aristotelian card in doing this. Um, but I've always found that two, two things. I, I always argue that it's such a theological work that Augustine is the person behind the Summa. Mm. I think that in many ways he's so formed by Augustine. But he uses, he's so democratic in his use of sources. I mean, Maimonides is there and Cicero. Every, I mean, everybody is there. Everybody. <laughs> I mean, I, it's really, I, I would like to know, after I finish, um, I would like to know um, did he use sources as so in such a profligate way, it, it, with such abandon and so many uh, and so democratically, um, in a way that other scholastics were were of, of that capacity? You know, but that's for you to think about while you're finishing. Um, but I do think that he also uses Aristotle, and I think he does. And so I would disagree a little bit with the way you take fifty-five-four this definition of virtue. I think he uses Aristotle to correct Augustine. Um, I think that in, in a way he's trying to do this formative thing, which is much more inclusive. And, and, and he's doing that in Paris and not down in Rome. Um, he's doing it at a university where there would be a very different uh, tenor than what he had before. So. Can, can I, while you maybe think, say one thing. So that, <laughs> that article, that, 55.4, where he's dealing with Augustine's definition of, of virtue. Well, the, the, the three articles that precede that are working through an explicitly Aristotelian definition of, of virtue. And then one of the things that 55.4 does is to show that this Augustinian definition, which has this especially non or anti-Aristotelian thing at the end that says that virtue is that which is worked within us without us, that he needs to show how, or he seeks to show how this fits with this Aristotelian vision of virtue that he has been exploring in the preceding articles and throughout the, the questions on habit that preceded, a, a topic on which Augustine has not much positive to say. Yeah, no. I should perhaps confess what my co-panelists know, uh, which is that I'm uh, in, the, in the small and overheated world of Thomistic exegesis, 
I'm famous for having read a lecture at the Pontifical Institute of Naval Studies in Toronto entitled The Alleged Aristotelianism of Thomas Aquinas. Oh. Um, but let me just add one other thing on this question of sources. What is so interesting, I mean, Thomas, Thomas, the order concentrated a lot of resources around Thomas in terms of <coughs> people to do, like, research assistants yeah. and translators. <laughs> and so a lot of, one of the reasons he's able to bring in new texts in the Greek is he has people who are doing translations from the Greek for him. The one area where Thomas's um, range of reference is limited is in medicine and natural science. And I spent, it's hard, when one is young, one thinks that one is immortal. Uh, I spent five years tracking the medical references in Thomas Aquinas, only to discover that all of them were either um, popular doggerel, known to every undergraduate in a medieval university, or quoted, taken, taken from his teacher, Albert the Great. Right. So there is no. So in that case, what you find with Thomas, as I as I now think of it, is what's surprising with Thomas and natural science is is not that he quotes so much; it's how much he manages to do by quoting so little. Mm -hmm. Right. This in the corner there. Okay, that you don't see. Right, well, this will be really quick. Good. Just, this will be the last question. Thank you. As a question of it, dealing with the whole text, and what is it for? How do you, and I'm interested in all three of your responses to this, how do you uh, take it that it's that it's an unfinished work? And do you think he finally listened to Jesus and decided to stop writing? Or do you think he had a health problem? Or some third thing? So this question refers to one of the um, strongest stories that's in the testimony for Thomas's canonization, which is that near the end of his life, December, in fact, um, four months before he died, he had a vision during this, while he was celebrating the Eucharist. And when his associate asked him afterwards what happened, um, he said, uh, all that I have written seems to me to be straw. I should point out that the road of straw was the location of the Faculty of Arts in the University of Paris. So Thomas may be saying, all that I have written is dung, or he may be saying, all of I have written remains in the level of the academic. And he did stop writing at that point. Um, it's not clear how much of that is physical, uh, physical or not. But I think the unfinished character um, is frequently lamented, right, that he broke off writing the Summa. And there are things to regret because we know what would have been there. He told us in advance what would be in there. Uh, what would have been in there, for example, would be a new treatment of marriage. And to have Thomas sort out the mess of medieval theology of marriage would have been quite something. We had to wait for Luther instead. Uh, that's another story. Um, but I, of course, find the absence of the end kind of perfectly fitting. Yeah, I mean, there's little that tempts more speculation among scholars than this, and I, I mean, I think, I don't have a lot to add beyond what Mark said. I mean, Dennis Turner, in his kind of short book on Aquinas, sees this as a elected and, and deliberate choice to precisely to signal in a certain way the, not just the unfinished, but the unfinishable 
character of all human efforts to speak truly about about God. I do think one one question it raises is to the ex and I wanted to bring this up but but kind of ran out of time. One question this raises is to the extent that Thomas is freighting his the more that Thomas is freighting his writing, the bigger a deal it seems that he is just leaving it aside or declaring it straw. So that is a feather in the cap of the hyper philosophical readers of, of Thomas, but they have little else to commend them. I would just say I think that he's sick. Yeah. I think he's sick. I think the evidence that we have when he visits his sister Matilda, she literally pummels the other Dominican with him saying, What have you done to my brother? He's so uh, outside of himself, he's beside himself. And there are all these accounts of how he was distracted and how he seems to be undergoing both a physical and a mental breakdown, besides having a moment of inspiration. But he's sick. I think we're bad. <laughs> 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 we're going to draw this evening to a close. Uh, let us thank again Mark and these two wonderful